Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're here to talk about one of the top teams in the Western Conference, the team that was actually the top seed in the Western Conference playoffs last year. They've fallen off a bit this year after some off-season changes and a not-as-good early season, let's just say. So I'm here today with Nathan Smith. And Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for having me, as always. I'm excited to talk about the Rockets. Got the uh, playoff race shaping up in, in the Western Conference, and I can't remember being this excited for the playoffs in a long time. Wow, even as a Laker fan? I know, it's surprising, right? I guess I guess no expectations. I get to just watch it as a fan and just kind of take everything in. So I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. <laughs> You've been doing that for the last six seasons, though, haven't you? I have, I have, yes. <laughs> Hopefully it ends at six. It's Kings fan prerogative to get in Laker fan jabs at any time, and I'm going to take full advantage of it. I think the I think the over-under at, uh, was set at 1.5 uh, Lakers jabs that you were going to make at me this podcast. So you're, you're well on the way to eclipsing that. <laughs> Moving on to the team that we're actually here to discuss today, the Houston Rockets. And I wanted to start out by talking about their big man rotation. And when you talk about their big man rotation, the only real place to start is with Clint Capella. He's improved dramatically since he was first drafted. And even when he first came into the league, he was still able to be a capable bit player as sort of a role player, rim runner, defensive type of big man. But this year he's proving that his leap from last season has staying power and can carry over to the future seasons. And he's once again been remarkable on both ends of the floor. What have you seen from Clint Capella so far this year? Well, Clint Capella has continued to impress. One of the best facets of his game is operating as a pick and roll role man. The chemistry he's shown with James Harden over the last few years um, has been remarkable. As a pick and roll role man this year, he averages 1.17 points per possession. And he's shooting just over 63%. Um, as a team, Houston's also uh, going to come in at top 10 in field goal percentage for pick and roll men. So it really shows um, how effective not only Capella, but others have been inside for Houston. And when it comes to a lot of matchups where in the past there'd be concerns about Capella getting played off the court, um, in fact, that's no longer, no longer a worry at all anymore. He's shown that he can dominate in matchups against even the toughest big men in the league. Uh, guys like Rudy Gobert, Nikola Jokic, and so on down the line. So Capella's play has been impressive. I think he's exceeded what a lot of people um, had set for his ceiling during his career. But all in all, he's a key cog to what Houston does. He's obviously their second or third uh, best player at this point, and he's going to need to play a a big role for them uh, come playoff time. The thing about Clint Capella as a role man is that on the one hand, you know, his ability to roll to the rim that effectively creates great scoring opportunities for him, creates easy passing lanes for James Harden and Chris Paul. But the other thing that it does is that him being the one in in the four out one in kind of setup means that he also helps the Rockets get open for three point shots by sucking in defenders as he's driving to the lane. And the Rockets once again lead the league in three-point attempts, and Clint Capella and the Rockets' other big men being able to roll to the rim is a huge part of that success from beyond the arc. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's been a threat that defenses have to respect, not only in the pick and roll, but on the defensive end as well. And I think you hit it on the head perfectly uh, about the four-out, the four one-in setup. It really is perfectly suited for Clint Capella, and kudos to Mike D'Antoni as well for being able to call plays and design an offense that fits of course, around a superstar, James Harden, but also incorporates Clint Capella in a very effective way. 
one of the other pick and roll big men for the Rockets this season, for a small part of this season, has been Kenneth Fareed, who's had quite an interesting season, to say the least. He started the year as a member of the Brooklyn Nets after being traded there from Denver and barely played at all. The Nets finally bought him out in early 2019. He went to sign with Houston and almost immediately became a starter due to Clint Capella being down with an injury. What a weird year it's been for Kenneth Fareed, but he's still been able to be incredibly effective in the pick and roll, which, to be fair, him being a roll man or really just diving to the rim generally, whether off pick and rolls or cuts, was his best success by far when he was with Denver, and he's showing that again in Houston. It was always a mystery to me why Kenneth Fareed wasn't playing more, uh, whether you talk about Denver and most likely because of the team depth, but mainly when you talk about Brooklyn, it, it really just didn't make too much sense. I thought he he was at least a viable rotation player at the very least, and he really fell into the perfect situation at the perfect time with the perfect team. Houston was down Clint Capella when they acquired him. Nene was, uh, if not injured, he was at least on and off. He would missed a few games there. And then after that, it was just razor thin. You talk about guys like Marquise Chris, who's no longer on the team, who's with Cleveland now. They had P.J. Tucker start a game at center. And I mean, P.J. Tucker's phenomenal. Great interior defense, but he's only 6'6". So he, of course, got dominated by Jared Allen on the boards. And I want to say it was the next day that they picked up uh, Kenneth Fareed, who had been bought out or released by uh, Brooklyn. And he's he's been phenomenal for them. He I mentioned how Clint Capella had a 1.17 uh, points per possession as a pick and roll man. Kenneth Fareed actually has a 1.27, so doing slightly better and shooting uh, just under 1% worse than Capella in that sample size, uh, coming in at 62.3%. So he's been the the perfect uh, substitute for Clint Capella, whether it's starting games for him when Capella's been hurt or whether it's coming in off the bench or, or actually even playing alongside Capella. They they had a couple lineups, which they um, which they don't go to too often, but they will feature Fareed and Capella together in the front court. And Fareed's even shown the ability to step out and make a couple threes. I mean, not an amazing clip or anything. I don't have the number in front of me, but if he can give you that just here and there, just a little bit, um, that makes it very easily justifiable to run him out there alongside Clint Capella, which kind of defies 2019 NBA logic. But it's been able to work work for them so far, and he's been a very key ingredient for Houston's second half run. Kenneth Fareed has made six of his 16 three-pointers so far this season, so we'll see if he can extend that in a larger sample size than that. The thing about Fareed more generally is that I think part of the reason that he didn't do as well in Brooklyn is because they didn't really have the personnel to be able to have him be the one guy in, in a four-man-out-one-in system. Because with Ronda Hollis-Jefferson getting a lot of minutes, with Jared Allen getting a lot of minutes, with Ed Davis getting a lot of minutes, and Jared Dudley can sort of be a stretch four, but not really at this point in his career, to be entirely honest. The Nets just didn't have anywhere near as much spacing to surround Kenneth Fareed by for him to be as successful in the Nets situation as he's been in Houston. But the other thing about Fareed is that he's just nowhere near the caliber of defender that Clint Capella is. I mean, Clint Capella is one of the better big man defenders in the league, and Kenneth Fareed is one of the worst big man defenders in the league. But on offense, he's definitely been able to replicate what Clint Capella does for them most of the time, and that certainly has been a success for them. Very good points. I think, especially going back to Denver, when you see Nikola Jokic and Mason Plumlee. And then prior to that, Yusuf Nurkic. Oh man, that just hurts saying Yusuf Nurkic's name. But um, 
when you look at those guys, I'm not arguing that Fareed should have played over them necessarily. And in Brooklyn, you you definitely mentioned those those guys that that played over him. I I just think that it just surprised me that he was not still at least somewhat of a rotation player. Um, if not for Brooklyn, maybe for another team. Uh, you look at these guys like and Montrez Harrell is having a better year, but you look at these guys like Montrez Harrell and Fareed that just seem kind of forgotten and uh, people kind of write them off whether they should or shouldn't have. But a lot of people aren't really open to the fact that these guys can improve. And when you have a tangible skill set like these guys do and can roll to the rim, um, can rack up some blocks and steals and spurts, Harrell more so at least. Um, Fareed has struggled defensively at times, of course. But when you when you have guys like that um, and they're able to do at least what Harrell and hopefully moving forward, Fareed can do a little bit, expand their game, whether it's Harrell with being able to play make as a passer coming out of the pick and roll um, as a roll man, or whether it's Fareed um, knocking down, you know, the six of 16 threes he's attempted this year. As long as those guys can continue to evolve and grow a little bit, I think there's definitely a place for them in NBA rotations. Um, Fareed, not quite to the level, of course, of Montrez this year, but but he's played basically the role that Montrez could have played. Obviously, he was dealt away in the Chris Paul trade, but I still don't think you'd find any Houston fan that isn't very satisfied with what Kenneth Freed's brought to the table this year for Houston. Moving on to Gary Clark, he earned a lot of the minutes that Carmelo Anthony was playing earlier in the season, but he just has not been able to get it going on the offensive end at all. He's shooting 33% from the floor right now. He's taking most of his shots from three-point range, to be fair, but he's also still only knocking down 30% of his triples. On the one hand, he has been a valuable defensive piece for them. But on the other hand, if he can't make more than 30% of his threes, I don't know how much longer he's going to be around. What are your thoughts on Gary Clark Jr. this year? Gary Clark definitely impressed me uh, to start the year. I just liked kind of the energy he brought off the bench. But I was definitely definitely wondering if that was going to be something he was going to be able to keep up throughout the duration of the season. Unsurprisingly, it hasn't lasted the whole season. But I think he's definitely he's definitely done at least at least helped out in terms of replacing what Houston lost last year. They've got a lot of other guys on the wing as well that can not be okay, if not not necessarily good or great, but okay and kind of fill fill the void and just not do dumb things. If you just surround Harden and Paul with guys that, you know, ideally in theory won't turn the ball over and will make the right play, it's not the worst thing in the world. So I don't have any raving reviews, but I do like the energy he brings and I like that he's a, um athletic body that can – guard the three and the four and kind of fit with multiple lineups that, that Houston does. So the one thing I would say is I would like to see him uh, increase the three-point shooting percentage. You mentioned that as well, and I think that's going to be a key for him in terms of his viability as a rotation player come playoff time. But he's got a really, I think, a really, really cheap contract, I want to say. And he's 10, 12 minutes a game. Can't really, can't really fault Houston for playing him for that. But once it does come playoff time, he will need to be hitting those threes and able to stay in the rotation. But all in all, he's had a he's had a decent season and exceeded expectations. So there's there's a lot to like there. The one thing that concerns me is that half of his minutes, actually more than half of his minutes so far this season, came in the month of November when the Rockets were dealing with a bunch of injuries and weren't really all there. And during that month of November, Gary Clark shot 27.9% from the floor and 25% from deep. And while the Rockets did actually play better in terms of plus minus numbers with Gary Clark in the lineup overall. The beginning of the season was by far the worst time of the year for them. And that's when he got a majority of his minutes. So 
I'm still a bit skeptical that he can really be a high-level contributor, and I think the Rockets are definitely going to be nailing him to the bench come playoff time. You mentioned earlier, just sort of in passing, the kind of play that P.J. Tucker has been able to give the Rockets this year, playing the second most minutes behind James Harden on the team, even starting at center sometimes, despite his lacking of size, even for the power forward position, to be entirely honest. But for Tucker, he just sort of does everything for the Rockets on the defensive end of the floor. He can't quite guard one through five. He's not really quick enough to stay with the faster point guards on the perimeter, but he basically just does everything that the Rockets need him to do on both ends of the floor. And it's really impressive to see him continue to be that kind of all-around piece for them. Yeah, P.J. Tucker's been really been a Swiss Army knife for Houston once again this season. He's kind of one of those guys that gets lost in the shuffle from time to time in terms of the national media's perspective. But he's also been so solid for a few years now um, in the second stint of his career that he's really actually has finally started to gain some of that national recognition. I've heard some people come with a little bit of a, not a little bit, but a lot, a lot of bit of a hot take, if you will, and say that he's the, uh, the most valuable player on Houston, which, well, you can make up your own mind about that. But at only six, five, he's still able to defend effectively at the three position and the four position. He's a guy that can get block steals, but also play good on ball and off ball defense. Um, he's a guy that's usually pretty talkative as well, does what he can usually effectively to get his teammates in the right spot alongside him. And he's a player that's going to make other guys around him better. It might not be a huge difference, but from everything I can tell and everything I've heard and everything I've gathered from watching PJ Tucker over the years, he seems to be pretty much universally regarded as a good teammate. Um, and he's the, the kind of guy that you look at when you look at a championship roster, there's usually at least one of those type of guys, whether you want to talk about going back a few years, like a Bruce Bowen, um, you got Andre Iguodala's guys like that. Each team, it's a little bit different, but he's played a great role uh, for Houston this year. And moving forward, um, he's going to continue to be continue to be part of the core. I think any injury to him would be um, extremely de- detrimental in the playoffs, and could be arguably as almost as impactful as losing a a Clint Capella or a probably not as much as a Capella or Chris Paul, but but certainly right behind there. Um, PJ Tucker is going to have to guard the best the best wing player. Um, sometimes post player of the opposing team. And without that, I don't think Houston stands a chance versus the Western Conference elite or in a hypothetical NBA finals if they were to somehow make it that far. So PJ Tucker is going to continue to be extremely valuable to them. The only concern I have really is the wear and tear as he averages, I think, in the mid 30s of minutes per game. So that would be my only concern. But PJ Tucker is, is key to what Houston does defensively and on the offensive end with the corner threes. So they're going to continue to rely on him down the stretch. And from all, all looks of it, he's going to continue to be a solid player for him. Let's move on to talking about the wings and guards for the Rockets. And there is no place to start but with James Harden, who in almost any other year this decade besides this one would be the clear MVP. We will talk a bit later in more depth about this year's MVP race, which is going to be one of the tightest in this decade, in my mind at least. But Harden has been breaking scoring records that we haven't seen broken since Wilt Chamberlain's day this year. He averaged 43 points in the month of January. He's put up nine 50-point games by himself so far this year. His isolation numbers are ridiculous to the point of disbelief when you look at them. He's isolating more than every other team in the NBA combined. Just, not combined, sorry, but 
he's averaging more isolation plays than every other team in the NBA just by himself. And he's averaging 36 points a game, seven and a half assists per game, six and a half rebounds per game. And he's averaging a little over two steals per game as well. He's not obviously going to be an all defensive team caliber player, but he's certainly not the lapping stock on that end that he was earlier in his career. And he's been underratedly solid in isolation defense for pretty much his entire career. It's difficult to talk too much about the kind of season that James Harden has been having. We could probably do a whole podcast just talking about James Harden's season. Uh, he's certainly been one of the most polarizing, if not the most polarizing players to watch in the NBA this year. Whether you want to talk about the triple doubles, the 40-point games, the 40-point triple doubles, the 50-point triple doubles, he's really done it all. Um, the knock on Harden, the generic knock, and I've been guilty of it in the past as well, is saying that he doesn't play any defense, but really that's not the case anymore at all. He's, he's kind of found his niche as far as being a guy that can guard 6'5", 6'6", 6'7", 6'8", uh, versatile type forward guys, as opposed to normally the other team's shooting guard. He's more often than not, not just directly on the other team's uh, two guard. But when you've got Harden kind of being just okay, being average on the defensive end, that's really all you need when you're talking about a guy that, that is going to put up 36 points a game. He's got uh, 14 combined rebounds and assists averaging per game. The volume has has certainly been the main reason that Harden has been able to put up that many points, but it it all kind of comes down to which narrative you you want to ride with with James Harden. A lot of people say, well, well, he's being selfish, putting up all these points, et cetera, et cetera. But I I would more more lean to the side of giving him the benefit of the doubt, as he's mentioned and other people have mentioned as well. He really had no other choice rather than shoot, you know, a million times a game during these times where Capella was out, Paul was out. And different guys were missing games. I mean, it's either that or you just have Austin Rivers and guys like that chucking up a bunch of a bunch of terrible shots a game. So James Harden did what he had to do. And I hate to to use that the same the same, I guess, cliche that we're we're both falling into, which is uh in any other year, James Harden would probably be the runaway MVP. But obviously this year things are a little bit different, how they contested MVP contest, but I think the key for James Harden this year and to kind of really put uh, a nice, another, another notch on his belt, if you will, will be to make a really uh, deep playoff run this year. I don't think he'll be able to lead the Rockets over the Warriors, but crazier things have certainly happened. So I've definitely become more of a fan of James Harden. The style of play doesn't bother me as much anymore, and I'll certainly be rooting for him to make a nice playoff run this year. I think that'll be fantastic TV. I really, um, really wouldn't mind at all another Rockets-Warriors-Western Conference Finals. I think that'd be a fantastic rematch, and I think uh, that most NBA fans would agree with that as well. This isn't particularly a statistical argument as much as it is an anecdotal argument, but it just felt like almost every other day for the entirety of this season, I've seen headlines with, you know, James Harden puts up 56 points and the Rockets win by five points, or James Harden puts up 47 points, 13 assists, and 15 rebounds in a four-point Houston loss. I mean, going back to your point from earlier, they really did have to lean on him as heavily as they did to even have a chance to stick around this season. I mean, it's not like he was putting up these ridiculous games and the Rockets were running away with them. These were tight games that he was winning almost entirely by himself. They really were. And what's even more impressive is something that you also alluded to earlier, the the frequency in, in which Houston runs isolation plays, 
they run it on 20.6% of their offensive possessions, which is far and away the most in the league. That's more than double the next closest team, which is Oklahoma City. And obviously, a, a huge amount of that is, is Harden. So not only is he putting up all these points, playing in the mid to high 30s, near 40 minutes uh, some nights, but he's, he's doing it in almost the most exhausting way possible in terms of on the offensive end. On the defensive end, he might not be guarding the player with the ball, as we mentioned too often, but on the offensive end, those isolations can really take it out of you when you're dribbling that, mu- that much per possession. So the question with Harden in the past as the season's wound down has been, does he have the stamina? That, that might come across too harsh. I, I think he actually has fantastic stamina and fantastic um, durability as a player. It's just that he's taking on such an insane workload that you know any human would kind of buckle under that, even, even the best athletes. So it'll be interesting to see if he can maintain this level of play come playoff time. He does, though, seem to be just on a completely different level this year. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he kept this up in the playoffs, but I think that's going to be one of the main storylines for not only the Rockets, but for the NBA come playoff time. And and I will definitely be excited to watch it and see the outcome. Moving on to Austin Rivers, I will freely admit that when Austin Rivers was with the Pelicans for the first year and a bit of his NBA career, I did not think he was an NBA player. I just thought that he was way too selfish on the offensive end and gave up way too much on the defensive end of the court. And I wasn't sure if he would be able to last in the NBA, even playing for his father on the Clippers. And serious credit to Austin Rivers, who proved himself as an NBA player with the Clippers and is continuing to prove himself as a solid NBA role player with Houston He's completely changed his game. He was such a selfish isolation player during his first couple seasons, and he can get a bit too dribble-happy at times still, but for the most part, he's become an off-ball three-point shooter and one of the many guards in the league who won't make an all-defense team but is pretty darn close and can give you 85% of what the league's best guard defenders can give you on that end of the floor. So... Again, serious credit to Austin Rivers, who I never thought would last as long as he has in the NBA. And at this point, it seems like he's going to stick around for a while longer as well. Yeah, when they signed him, I was definitely surprised for more reasons than one. One, just kind of I wasn't sure about any if there were any potential chemistry issues going back to when he was teammates with Chris Paul in Los Angeles as a Clipper or anything like that. Apparently, everything was fine. The locker room seems to be in pretty good shape. Didn't seem to really be an issue. And then my other concern was uh, the consistency. I wasn't sure if he'd be able to stay in the rotation on a regular basis. But as you mentioned, he's done more than enough to stay in the rotation. And to my surprise as well, he on the year is shooting um, just under 41%, just under 32 from three, which doesn't sound that great. But that's good enough, honestly, when you've got a team that's being carried by James Harden and then your second tier guys like, like Paul and Capella. Austin Rivers has done, honestly, more than enough to be an effective player for them. So... I definitely didn't see this happening. Um, I have never really been that high on Austin Rivers, honestly. But his uh, his stop in Houston has been successful, honestly. So looking looking towards the playoffs, um, like we are with a lot of these guys, I think he'll be a guy that's more likely to receive minutes than a um, than a Clark or a House or something like that. So I guess credit to Daryl Morey for taking another guy uh, off the quote unquote scrap heap. Austin Rivers has been has been good for Houston. Let's quickly run through some of the other bench players in the wing and guard rotation, starting with Denwell House Jr., who was with the Rockets earlier in the year on a two-way contract. There was some weirdness with that where 
He'd served his two-way contract allotted time of 45 days in the NBA, but the Rockets couldn't sign him due to roster spot issues and luxury tax weirdness. So they cut him, but now he's back and he's on the team for good. We'll be there through the playoffs, certainly. And he's shooting 41% from three-point range, and he's taking about 60-ish percent of his shots from out there. And that's really the most important part of Danville House by far is being an incredibly effective three-point shooter on the most three-point shooting happy team in the NBA. Yeah, and that's exactly what they need. He was definitely a pleasant surprise, and I was I was definitely puzzled uh, when they initially didn't keep him. Uh, you explained, obviously, perfect perfectly what happened in terms of the salary cap implications and the, the roster limits and everything. Um, fortunately for Houston, they were able to still, to still re-sign him once it was all said and done. Because he really has been an effective three-point shooter, as you said. Um, I'm not sure if he can keep up the 41%, but that's that's fantastic for right now. He's a guy that's a little bit bigger than PJ Tucker. He's kind of in that you know that tweener forward role, um, but he can he can guard the two, the three, the four, and in a pinch, maybe a smaller, maybe a smaller five, maybe not, probably not, honestly. But he's versatile enough to kind of make up for some of the wing depth that Houston lost last year, and to provide you know, just a solid role player that, that can do what he's supposed to do, make the solid play, um, play, you know, play de- decent defense and, uh, and knock down some threes when, when James Harden and, and others penetrate the lane. So when you've got Harden doing just that and doing the isolation, it's crucial that you have guys out on the perimeter that can space the floor and that are, that the defense has to respect and that, that are actually going to be a legitimate threat from three. You can't just, you know, put anybody out there, um, and have defenders sagging off and clogging the lane for Harden. So. If House is um, able to continue to shoot um, near that clip, um, things are looking good for him in Houston. So I think he's a guy that is more likely than not to to stick in the NBA. And I think he's he's carved out a role for himself moving forward. Just to clarify, by the way, regarding Danwell House, basically what happened is that the Rockets signed him to a deal out of training camp, and then they had to cut him because they ran out of roster spots. Then they re-signed him to that two-way deal. He played out his 45 days in the NBA on that deal went back to the G League, and then the Rockets finally converted that two-way deal just a couple of weeks ago. But he's been a big part of that Rockets bench. And another shooter who's been a big part of that Rockets bench, Gerald Green, hasn't been doing quite as well from beyond the arc as House has, but he's been taking basically all of his shots from out there. Over 75% of Gerald Green's shots have come from beyond the arc. And he is only shooting 35% from out there, but... If everybody knows that the only shots you're going to take are from beyond the arc and you're still taking them at that kind of rate, it's pretty much fine for you to only be making them at that 35% clip. Green also does something that a lot of other Rockets players do, which is stand a few feet beyond the three-point line, so taking 25, 26-foot threes rather than right behind the line. And that extra space really helps the Rockets' offense, even if it maybe gives you a slight dip in terms of your three-point shooting overall. Anything Houston can do to increase those driving lanes, um, such as having their shooters uh, take, you know, a couple a couple extra feet when they when they position themselves beyond the three point line, that's that's going to be going to be um, a great recipe for for success. That's going to help guys like Harden and Chris Paul have the driving lanes open, especially for Chris Paul, a guy that's six foot. Um, he's been obviously elusive and slippery his whole career in the lane, but even even still with um, as an advanced player, he doesn't have quite the same athleticism anymore. So he, he, he could benefit from even an extra, extra little bit of space, uh, here and there. But Gerald Green was, was really never, 
a guy that was sticking on any rotation or anything for at least long term until he came to to Houston. Um, kind of bounced around the NBA and was another guy that Daryl Morey kind of picked up the the scrap heap, if you will. He is a guy that's from Houston as well and brought them some great energy uh, last year towards the end of the year and then heading into the playoffs and is kind of the same player this year. So he's, of course, not a dead-eye shooter or anything, but he's more than capable. Um, kind of fits the mold of, of a lot of those wing and guards that Houston has in terms of, you know, after Eric Gordon, I wouldn't call any of them a locked or a knockdown shooter or a dead-eye shooter or anything like that, but they're all more than capable um, and certainly to the point where defenses have to respect them, which which allows Houston's offense to really to really operate at its highest level. So guys like Gerald Green and Daniel House aren't going to get the headlines really, but they do a lot of behind-the-scenes work, if you will, that enables Houston to be a successful offensive team. So Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is Chris Paul's season, just sort of from start to finish. He's once again struggled with injury throughout the year. He's going to end up playing probably fewer than 60 games this year. He's not the kind of defensive force that he was earlier in his career. He doesn't have the same kind of quick twitch speed that he did when he was a top flight defender. And obviously the older he gets, the more that his relative lack of size, even for the point guard position is going to be an issue. And he's got four seasons left on his deal, including the last two years at over 40 million a year each. And it's getting harder and harder to see him living up to that contract, especially since his last All-Star game was three years ago, and it looks like he's not going to be back in that All-Star contest again for the rest of his career. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't project him to make another All-Star team. He's making, I think, what, 33 or $35 million this year, but it's it's extremely alarming how much it how much it balloons as he heads toward the end of it. I think he's going to be making over $40 million within a year or two, and a lot of people have argued that, well, it's a deal they kind of had to do. You've got to retain your stars. But for, for a Daryl Morey move, it kind of surprised me a little bit. I, I just, I was just surprised, I guess, that Houston was willing to commit that much money long term. Um, I think that Chris Paul was kind of committed to the situation. I could be wrong on that. So I think he was going to re- resign regardless. I just have questions, I guess, in terms of giving him the, the max like that and giving him as many years as they did. So you can argue they kind of had to in a sense, but I think it's gonna it's kinda harsh to say it's gonna cripple them moving forward, but I, I think that salary that salary is really gonna limit their their upside um starting as soon as next year. I'm not sure if Chris Paul would be the type to give back any salary or if there'd be any situation like that. And I'm not saying he, he should by any means, but maybe that could possibly be in play. But if not, you might have to rely on Daryl Morey to continue, you know, going with the uh one man's trash is another man's treasure approach and getting these guys like Daniel House and and Gerald Green. Um, I don't know if that's a recipe for long term success. Certainly, if anyone can pull it off, it's Maury. But but we'll definitely have to see moving forward because you know that when you talk about a player making forty million and especially when he's not even your best player, that's that's going to be alarming to say the least. Something that has been discussed ad nauseum with this Rockets team since they let them go is the impact that missing Trevor Ariza and Lou Richard and Bamute was going to have and has had on their defense. The Rockets were obviously carried by the strength of their offense last season, but they did have a pretty solid defense as well. And that defense has really declined quite drastically from last season to this season. And certainly a large part of it is missing those two top flight 
perimeter defenders in Ariza and Mbamute. I think the key for Houston was, at the very least, being able to retain, when you talk about their wings, being able to retain P.J. Tucker. I think losing him would have hurt a lot worse than Ariza or Mbamute. But I do think that Houston was definitely hurt by the loss of those two, especially when you look at early in the year. Combined with the fact that they were without um, their defensive coordinator, Jeff Bezdelic, Houston definitely got off to a rocky start um, as they as they adjusted from the loss of of their assistant coach and two key defensive wings. They were 25th in defensive rating um, during that time period until at the beginning of the year until um, Bezdelic came out of his brief retirement. And since then, their monthly rankings have shown significant improvement. Um, maybe not at first, but at least generally speaking, um, they finished 16th, dipped back to 27th, then 19th, and now all the way up to second in March. And their record reflects that coming in at 12 and three. So I think the loss definitely hurt. Um, it continues to hurt at least, at least somewhat. I think I liked Houston's overall uh, roster a little better last year, but a lot of the guys like Green and House that we've discussed have helped absorb the loss of Ariza and Mabamute. And PJ Tucker has taken on an even, an even larger role. Um, just basically a super saiyan role of what, if you will, of what he was already doing. So he's been immensely valuable for them as we've discussed. But I think without him, the, the pain of losing Ariza and Mabamute would be more evident or more apparent. But really kudos to the second, the secondary role players on Houston that have helped kind of, kind of mitigate, um, the loss of, of those two veterans that you mentioned. All right, let's move on to talking about the future outlook for this team, and let's start with the near future. The regular season is almost over, and even though we won't know who actually won those awards for another two and a half months because the NBA really knows how to market their awards season, the MVP votes will be counted after the final games and for the playoffs start, and as we discussed earlier, it's pretty much a two-man race at this point between James Harden and Giannis. I will admit that James Harden does have an incredibly strong case, and there is this tired cliche of, well, any other year it would be James Harden, but Giannis Antetokounmpo has been the best defensive player on the best defensive team in the league. He's been the best offensive player on one of the best offensive teams in the league. The Bucks have the best record in basketball, Giannis is setting all sorts of records on his own, especially in terms of unassisted dunks. Just his ability to drive through anybody and get to the rim is beyond absurd. And he's setting numbers around the basket that are the kinds of numbers we haven't seen from anyone since Shaquille O'Neal in his prime. I mean, it's still a difficult decision, but I just think that if you look at all the things that MVP voters have valued in MVP candidates for the last 50 years, I just think that Giannis checks ever so slightly more boxes than James Harden does. I do too. And I really hate that we have to, you know, keep saying any other year he would win, but it's just, it's just so true. It really is. Um, the recipe is just right for Giannis to take it home this year. And that's nothing against Harden at all. I know Rockets fans probably think that's just absurd, but. But Las Vegas actually has Giannis still as the favorite to win MVP. Um, it's it's a slight margin. It's not a huge favorite or anything. But Harden really just might end up being that guy that racks up more second place MVP finishes than anybody. Um, he, might, he might already have that. Honestly, I'm not quite sure, but I know I know he has at least a couple. I think that 
I think that next year, you know, you're going to get the same heart and he's going to come out just as hungry to win because I don't think he'll end up winning it. But I know it's certainly on his mind. And, you know, after winning, I think that's his, his main, main goal right now. I don't think he's a guy that's worried about rest or anything like that, despite um, him showing signs of needing rest in the past down the stretch. Um, he's, he's a guy that he's, he's just a flat hooper. He wants to be out there every day, every game, um, doing whatever he can to show that, that he's the MVP. But, I think he's going to fall just a little bit short. I think the narrative this year uh, across the NBA with um, a lot of the more prominent writers and people that do have a vote, um, the narrative favors Giannis. So that's that's going to be my pick. I'll stick to that. But looking back a couple months ago when, when you and I were discussing the Thunder, and I think I can't remember if you did, but I know I definitely had Paul George over Harden. That seems just completely foolish now. He's he's the clear the clear number two, if not the number one, as some people would say, for a uh, choice for MVP. So Paul George, um, mostly because of the shoulder injury and, and subsequent um, subsequent um, dip in his level of play uh, post-All-Star break, has distanced himself um, back in the race. And it's, it's a two-man race now, of course. Again, I've got Giannis taking it home, but but man, I just I just even feel bad saying that. Harden's done everything he can this year, poured, poured his heart and soul into every Rockets game. And... I, I hate to see him not take it home, but I really think it's going to be Giannis. Let's take a look beyond the MVP voting and towards the playoffs. And the Rockets are currently battling for third versus fourth seed between them and the Portland Trailblazers. They're a few games, two and a half at this point, behind Denver and Golden State at the top. But it really seems like it's going to come down to that three seed versus four seed between the Rockets and the Trailblazers. And if I'm Houston, I am competing my behind off every day for the remainder of the season. Even if James Harden might be dealing with some fatigue concerns, I honestly think that the Rockets will care more about getting into that third seed overall than who they're going to play in the first round of the playoffs. They might even be honestly willing to let Harden ease up on the gas in that first round playoff game because I think getting to the three seed for Houston is going to be absolutely essential to them making a long playoff run. I would agree with that. And I do expect them to, to finish as the third seed um, just for the, the simple reason of the trailblazers being so banged up right now with Yusuf Nurkic um, suffering that gruesome injury and CJ McCollum uh, still not um, healthy for them. So I, I would expect Houston to hold on looking at the remaining um, five games. I've got them winning conservatively three but really really i'd say four i think they'll drop drop at least one they've got the kings uh clippers knicks suns and thunder so two guaranteed wins <laughs> kind of versus the knicks and suns and then we'll have to see with the other three but i think they'll end up finishing as the third seed it'll be interesting um to see the the five through the race for five the fifth through eight seeds in the west because there's a lot of interesting um layers to the matchups there as far as houston might face but I think as long as they're the third seed, um, that they'll be happy with that. And I don't think they should be trying to position themselves specifically as the third or fourth to get a certain matchup or anything like that. I think there's hardly any point in doing that. They should just finish out the season. And I think they match up as, as the favorite with any, any team they would draw from the bottom half of the Western playoff race. I would agree that I think they match up as the favorites against any of the teams in the bottom half of the West. But in terms of the teams that they're likely to play in that first round series, 
as of right now, when I'm looking at the standings on basketballreference.com, it says that the Houston Rockets would be matching up with the Los Angeles Clippers in the first round. And I think there are a whole bunch of reasons that would be a really fun and interesting series. So that would be what I'm rooting for in terms of what I think would make the best television. If I'm looking at it from the perspective of what team I think would be best for the Rockets to actually play in that first round, I think that Utah would be really good for them because Clint Capella is going to play Rudy Gobert better than almost any other center in the Western Conference. And when you get beyond that, I just think that the Rockets have the right players at every position to match up well against that Utah team. Oh, yeah. I I would say that's the most favorable matchup for them. What's interesting is each one of those potential matchups, whether it's Jazz, Clippers, Spurs, or Thunder, all come with their own interesting narratives. Um, The Rockets versus the Jazz, of course, you kind of alluded to that there with the Capella-Gobert rematch coming off a a series in last year's playoffs in which Houston won handily. You've got the Spurs for um, the inter-Texas matchup where Harden has infamously uh, failed in the playoffs a couple of years ago. Um, You've got, of course, the coaching aspect to that with Greg Popovich and Mike D'Antoni to clashing styles that be, would be interesting. And then the Thunder, of course, uh, with James Harden taking on his, his former team um, and his friend Russell Westbrook. Those would all be interesting, but man, the Clippers might be the most interesting one of all. Just just when you, when you talk about the, the secret tunnel and, and all the different things that have gone on in the Houston Clippers um, rivalry, whether it's the, the tunnel or what the Chris Paul trade or just chippiness on the court or Harden's iconic step back last year that ruined uh, Wesley Johnson. Um, there's just always, always exciting things that happen in that series. So that's how it, how it stands now. If the season were to end today, who's to say if that'll, it'll remain that way, but that would be my number one choice to see just from a fan perspective as the Rockets taking on the Clippers. But in terms of who the Rockets would match up best with, I think they would like to, to draw the Jazz. But again, I think no matter who they draw out of the Jazz, Clippers, Spurs, and Thunder, I think Houston will be favored to win the series. And the reason that I said earlier that I think the Rockets should be very desperate to get that third seed is because the third seed would lead to a second round matchup with the Denver Nuggets, who they've played against pretty well for the past few years. Whereas if they ended up in the fourth seed, that second round matchup would be against the Golden State Warriors and would therefore spell the end of the playoffs for the Houston Rockets. So going back to what you were saying earlier in the podcast about wanting a good playoff run for James Harden, given the kind of special season that he's had this year, I think the only path for him to have that kind of special season would be to make the Western Conference Finals. And I think the only way for them to do that is to make sure that they're on the other side of the bracket from the Warriors. I agree. Um, I Actually, didn't even didn't even consider that that the three C would definitely be more beneficial um, in terms of when it would allow them to um, hypothetically take on the Warriors. I don't think Houston would struggle with Denver at all. I will gladly, you know, gladly admit I was wrong if Denver does have a deep playoff wrong playoff run, but I just really don't see them as a serious contender. And I hate to say it because they've really made great improvements this year after just missing the playoffs last year, being. Um, right around the, the top of the standings for the majority of this season. And they've got a deep team as well, and I like a lot of their players. But, you know, until I'm until it's proven that they, they can, you know, hang with the, the Rockets and the Warriors of the world, I really just see the Warriors and the Rockets as the clear two top teams in the West right now. So it's going to be definitely beneficial for Houston to delay seeing the Warriors, of course, until the Western Finals. But I see almost no scenario in which the Rockets would be able to avoid them in, entirely just based on the fact that I don't think anybody has a chance to beat them in the West. 
other than Houston. And even then, I think that's really remote. I really don't expect that at all. Uh, the Warriors are heavy favorites to win the Western Conference, as you would expect, and heavy favorites to repeat as as NBA champions once again. So longer the Rockets can delay seeing him, that's great. But I think that they can, you know, say they're not as focused on the Warriors anymore or say that narrative's dead, but we we all know what the Rockets are looking forward to. They're not worried about the Nuggets. Um, of course, they're going to take them seriously and respect them as they would any playoff opponent, but their their main focus is the Warriors. And James Harden is going to do whatever he can to not only get back uh, to the Western Conference Finals against the Warriors, but to lead his team to victory. Now, whether he can do that or not, you know, that's going to be a tough monumental task that remains to be seen. But that's certainly the goal for Houston. And that, as it stands now, that's what I would imagine the Western Conference Finals matchup being is Warriors-Rockets. I have a lot more confidence in the Nuggets than you do, but I think that that would be a pretty close to even series between the Rockets and the Nuggets. It would not be close to an even series between the Rockets and the Warriors, and that's certainly not a series that the Rockets want to have to play until they get to the Western Conference Finals. And sort of building on that, I guess the next question is, how much longer do you think the Rockets' window for title contention will stay open? And I say title contention in particular because James Harden is going to be around for quite a while in Houston, and I don't see them missing the playoffs with him as their lead man anytime soon. But the Rockets really got close last year to making the NBA Finals, and I would have been shocked if they'd made it to the NBA Finals and then lost to Cleveland, especially given the showing we did see from the Cavaliers against the Warriors in that Finals. But Houston took Golden State to Game 7 in that series, and they would have probably won Game 6 had they been able to hit, say, two of those 27 three-pointers that they missed consecutively. And I don't say that as a jab at Rockets fans, but I'm just curious as to how much longer they can be one of the top playoff teams in the Western Conference rather than one of those teams fighting in the fifth or eighth seed mix. That zero for 27 or that 27 straight misses from three that you referenced is still one of the more bizarre things I've seen over the last few years in the NBA, uh, statistically at least. I really just can't fathom how that happened, especially when a team, you're talking about a team in the Rockets that is so used to shooting so many threes. That's, I just really, really cannot believe that happened last year. But moving forward this year and beyond, as far as how, how long their window will stay open, I think they've got at least another year or so. But I, as again, as we kind of talked about earlier, I'm concerned about Chris Paul moving forward, not for any reason other than just, you know, just getting a little bit older, uh, career going to be winding down a little bit. Um, he's become slightly more injury prone as his career has gone on. He's still clearly an above average player. Um, the tier below an all-star, but he's not going to be getting better anytime soon. Um, he, of course, will regress as he gets older. And I think we're already seeing, you know, peak James Harden. I'm not, I could be wrong, but I'm not sure how much better Harden can even get or how much better he can even perform. He's already, you know, looking like he's at peak level. But after that, when you look at Capella, Eric Gordon, guys like that, if they lose any one of them, then we're talking about the window possibly closing. Um, I think the window is open, but I think it's it's kind of hanging on by you know in in kind of a fragile manner. I don't I don't think that they're they're suited too well to bounce back from losing one of their core role players like a uh, like a Capella, uh, PJ Tucker, um, Eric Gordon, any one of those guys um, being lost. I think would just put a huge cap on on Houston's upside. But when you've got Daryl Morey as your GM and James Harden as your lead player, I mean, certainly you've got you know a puncher's chance at the very least. So their window will remain open. 
um, in that sense. But as far as title contention, um, you know, we'll see that that could only be another year or so. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Uh, no, I'm just looking forward to seeing this uh, MVP race come down to the wire. Um, I think Giannis will take it, but it's going to be fantastic to see how Harden and Giannis end the season. And I'd also like to see the Warriors-Rockets rematch. I think uh, you and I both are looking forward to that. All right. Well, he is Nathan Smith. You can find him on Twitter at NateSmithNBA. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website. I just did a write-up about Marvin Bagley III, and it's always fun to see Kings rookies who actually do well. So please check that out when you get a chance. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. If you have any feedback for me about the podcast, where you think I should go with future episodes, please either reach out to me via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.